it's Erin with Tall Ships America, and you are listening to A Bark, A Brig, and A Schooner Walk Into A Bar, a podcast where I get to know the people in our Tall Ships community. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and consider becoming a Tall Ships America member so I can keep talking to people with fun accents. You can become a member at tallshipsamerica.org. This week's guest is Simon Colley, founder of Trust Labs. We start on the other side of the world in Sydney, Australia, learn about the challenges of working with at-risk youth and the worst weather he's ever seen. All right. Well, if I can just have you say your, your name, rank, and serial number, Simon. I'm Simon Colley. I'm the founder of Trust Labs, which is an experiential leadership consultancy working mostly with global law firms. Thank you so much for taking the time, Simon. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs> uh, how are you hanging in there? Everything going okay in uh, Massachusetts? Oh, absolutely. As I'm sure many people have said recently, it's just like a transatlantic. You know, that's so interesting because I was going to bring that up. Uh, I was going to save it to later, but we can get right into it. I It is like a transatlantic because it is like being in quarantine when you're stuck on a boat for three weeks with the same people with a limited or a finite amount of food. Yeah. And it's, it's even easier because you can actually go out and get food. It, it's more like, it's more like a long coastal voyage in that regard. You can send the small boat in to, to reprovision, mm -hmm. but the idea that on any given day, you're, you're there with the same people you are, you know, following a similar routine because that makes sense, especially with small children. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, it just, it doesn't feel, and my, my wife, my wife's a Maritime Academy graduate, you know, she and I have worked on, on various vessels for extended periods of time. So it doesn't feel that abnormal. Well, let's go back then to tiny Simon. Where, where in Australia are you from, Simon? So I grew up in Sydney. Okay. I grew up uh, in a house at, at a view of the ocean and my father was former Royal Navy. So I, I always had a sense of the ships and the sea are a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And that sailing was pretty much the best thing that human beings had ever invented. <laughs> Did your mom sail or was it just your dad? The whole family sail? So we built a boat. We built a little 11 foot mirror dinghy when I was 10. And let's well, say we built it. My father did the work and I brought him cups of tea and, and passed him nails and, and sanded a lot. And when we launched the boat, you know, mum came out with us a couple of times. She enjoyed doing it as a family thing and she thought sailing was wonderful, but it mm -hmm. wasn't her thing. Did you grow up just sailing recreationally or were you more of a competitive sailor? No, we never I didn't get into racing until I was a lot older because okay. the class of boat we bought, they didn't race at the local club and so we'd have this choice of schlepping across to the other side of of sydney where they did race them or just not not doing that and that was the whole thing i didn't grow up in a, in a yacht club junior program mm -hmm. uh just sailed on and off loved it loved mm -hmm. the idea of it uh but it wasn't it was part of my growing up but not the way that say children where I live now, they go to, they're in the junior program at the local yacht club. They sail off these and, and go on and get sailing scholarships in college. That was not, that was not my background. No, mine was very similar too. We always had a boat. We were, uh, we grew up sailing, but I remember 
once doing one sort of competitive sailing through the YMCA, the local YMCA. And I was just like, this isn't as much fun as sailing with my parents. I can't nap. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, and where's lunch? Is someone going to, are we going to have lunch or what's, what's going on here? I was like, I'm more of a relaxed sailor. I'm not a competitive sailor, but I, I like sailing. I like being on the water, but like you, I very much grew up like this is more recreation than anything else. I just like spending the day on the water. It's, yeah. it's interesting. I've actually become quite competitive as I've grown older. I actually started racing by being paid for it. I was working uh, for a yacht charter company in Sydney mm-hmm. that would host big corporate regattas, say a bank might uh-huh. charter 30 vessels. And and the idea that there'd be a professional skipper and some of the larger ones, there might be a deckhand as well. And you take 10 people that really didn't know each other and, well, they might've met each other. They'd be, they'd be clients of the bank. Sometimes even maybe competitive people in roles at competitive banks and they'd all mm-hmm. go out and you couldn't even call it team building. They, <laughs> well, it's quite kind of smart because we'll, we'll talk more about team building in a moment, but team building in a short period of time on a sailing vessel is, is a really hard thing to do. But creating a, a visceral experience where a bunch of people share this challenge, it, it gives them something to bond over it and to have dinner at the yacht club afterwards. So this is the sort of program we were running. And the participants were supposed to be doing as much of everything as they possibly could, but the professional skippers had been on board to mm-hmm. keep them safe. Like we'd steer for the start or if, a, uh-huh. if, or if it was a crossing situation that was getting close. And my attitude was, I'm not a racer. I'm just going to bring this group out, bring them back safely mm-hmm. and make sure they have a good experience. And I'd have this racing philosophy where make your own boat, go as, get, go as fast as you can, get a clean start, go as fast as you can and just stay out of everyone's way. Like, then, get into, <laughs> like, then get into the sort of tactical situations mm-hmm. where they're trying to force an advantage just Bring the, bring the boat back in one piece with the same amount of people that you left with. <laughs> yeah. And after a while, this emphasis on focusing on the team, making sure they were having a good experience and making the boat go as fast as you could translated to actually becoming quite good. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain stage, I would never deliberately get tactical with rules or, or so forth, but I'd know mm-hmm. the rules backwards so I could anticipate situations. And then from there, just... Yeah, I started sailing on my own, started racing on my own. Did you work on tall ships in Australia? I did. So the first vessel I worked on was the Bounty. And that's not the the Bounty that was lost recently. This was not the one from the Marlon Brando film, which everyone is familiar with, you know, in the United States. This was the one that was built for a, a 1979 film with Liam Neeson and Mel Gibson, Daniel Day-Lewis, Anthony oh. Hopkins. Oh, it was <laughs> it, look it up it's it's got I a will. Lot of really famous actors uh, but anyway this this vessel was built in in new zealand and was a more faithful faithful replica to the original with the exception of the hull was made of steel but the rig was more authentic because she was slightly smaller and i started volunteering on her this is post-college i was working was working in sydney doing it type stuff mm-hmm. didn't have a clue what i was doing but it was a job i had i was working at it i didn't really like it and I was volunteering on weekends, just doing maintenance and so forth. And I got a phone call 
one day the ship was up the coast and they said, hey, Simon, we need help bringing the ship back to Sydney from Newcastle. Can you, can you come and help? And at the time I thought, wow, three days at sea on a square rigger. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember this for the rest of my life. Yeah. And went up there and the captain said, okay, we put to sea in, in two days. You need to be able to find, you need to know every line on the ship and be able to find them in the dark. Oh. It's a fully rigged ship. So it's like, you know, 150, 200 lines. And that was that. And it was a relatively uneventful voyage back, but they had me doing, it was like, here's the new guy. Let's, hey, Simon, I need you to go and enter in the, the uh, starboard topsail, starboard fore topsail sheet. So I do it. Hey, we need you to go and jump on the gallant to get it settled into a gear. And I, I do it. And we got back to Sydney and they said, we, we really like the way you work. Uh, would you want a full-time job? And I didn't even ask for the paid. I gave notice and took a 60, 70% pay cut and started working as a deckhand. What an incredible experience those three days, those three formative days. So how long were you on board uh, Bounty for? About 12 months. Okay. Um, and it was mostly a lot of day sales and maintenance, you know, traditional mm -hmm. maintenance. We had a, a fantastic crew that had some significant blue water transocean experience and a lot of people who had some wonderfully uh, authentic traditional rigging skills so it was a fan it was a great apprenticeship mm -hmm. and some nine months into that job I met a couple of there were a couple of girls tourists sitting on the dock and they asked some question about how the ship differed from you know a, a brigantine and before I answered the question I was like um where did you learn the word brigantine? <laughs> oh, we, we, you know, we did a program, you know, organization out of Woods Hole in Massachusetts. We did a semester program. And this is where I learned about Sea Education Association. Yeah. I didn't even get the name. I just knew they were in Woods Hole. And this is a ways back. The internet wasn't, you know, it existed, but it wasn't, <laughs> right. it wasn't something that I had much to do with. So I literally picked up the phone, called International Directory Assistance and got the number for Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and said, are you running semester programs on tall ships? And they're like, oh, let, let, let us give you that number and called, called SEA. And they were fantastic. And they said, what, basically, what American licenses do you have? And I'm like, I don't have an Australian <laughs> license. And they said, oh, well, you know, the only other people we hire are scientists. And I said, well, I, I have a degree in marine biology. I have some field oceanography experience. And they put me through. And so SEA, SEA hired me as a scientist. You know, working for SEA started meeting captains. And in the, mm -hmm. the industry, people will work for organizations and then they'll go to other ships. And a captain by the name of Pete Collagen said, you know more about uh, traditional rigging and, and small boat seamanship than most of the scientists we meet. I need a bosun on, on Spirit of Massachusetts going down to the Dominican Republic in the fall are you interested I'm like, absolutely and from there i just basically followed captains and just went from ship to ship which it's terrible from a resume perspective because it looks like you can't hold a job unless you're industry and you right. know which you know which captains are working on different ships and so right forth. right but some, somewhere around there i i got a license started sailing as second mate first mate on the california and first mate on bill of rights yeah before long yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go away and do other things. So like I said, I'd go back to Australia and, and do some work, corporate racing, got a teaching degree, taught conventional high school science. 
I said, well, not conventional science, but just working in a regular high school teaching, right. you know, biology, chemistry, and so forth. And then got recruited by Tolly Moore uh -huh. saying, hey, we hear you have a license and some experience in curriculum design. We are trying to get the Hawaiian Department of Education to recognize the, what they were calling ship's skills side of what, what the youth are doing on board mm -hmm. and get, get that accredited because they had a training program on board. This is when Tolly Moore was running um, programs for adjudicated, adjudicated youth. So mm -hmm. youth offenders mm -hmm. that had some diagnosed mental, mental illness is the wrong word, but it was from the whole Hawaiian Department of Mental Health. Right. So I went for them, took a job as second mate, up to my license to a, you know, next tonnage level. And yeah, left, left school teaching. And it's not that I disliked teaching in school. It's just, it was ultimate, ultimately unsatisfying, unsatisfying. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Right. Right. At the time I'd been thinking of going to work for Outward Bound. You know, I called a captain whose, whose advice I valued, let him know what I was thinking. And he said, Simon, if you want to become a better teacher, which clearly I did because I took time out to get an education degree, said, if you want to become a better teacher, nothing beats time in the classroom. And this is someone who had some classroom experience and about 15 years of outward bound experience and tall mm -hmm. experience and so forth. If I'd studied education, not because I wanted to be a classroom teacher, mm -hmm. but because I recognized that I just spent two years in a teaching role on various, various ships. And really had no idea what I was doing, what right. was good teaching, what was bad teaching. Right. I've got, got to get a teaching degree because um, I just wanted to be a better teacher. I was mm -hmm. teaching on a, on a whole bunch of vessels, a whole bunch of different uh, demographics. And it just struck me that I was, it bothered me that I was spending so much effort getting my mariner's skills as sharp as I could mm -hmm. and taking you know, getting licenses and being deliberate about which vessels I worked on because of the captains that were working there or the skills that I'd get from different programs and different ships. But my approach to education was what felt right. And I right. just wanted, I wanted to get, I wanted to know why I was doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be able to improve it if there was a better way of, of better way of doing that. I do want to ask you though about working with the adjudicated kids can you are you like can you talk about that absolutely what was the program like so i've done this aboard a couple of vessels and my first exposure to it was with through vision quest whom at the time had the schooners bill of rights and new way and both were kept in fantastic condition largely because they had a captive workforce on board you know you had the varnish was always stunning because <laughs> once every two months you'd give, give everyone a green scrubby and get them to bust the gloss and you'd go and lay down another, another couple of coats. But it did feel, it did feel daunting. And I think that's one of the reasons why, why I, apply, I applied mm -hmm. because it was a challenge from a, from an operations point of view. It was a mm -hmm. challenge from a, a personal point of view, being mm -hmm. able to connect with, you know, knowing that it was not going to be something that I could just, unintentionally walk in and do right or rather walk in and just be myself without being very mindful of how I was interacting with them. So anyone that goes to work for vision quest and vision quest is a huge organization that had two schooners, but that was not the biggest part of their, 
their operation. They ran wagon trains, they ran farms, they ran boot camps and so forth. And they are a for-profit organization that were taking kids that were, were in, in the court system, mm-hmm. but they were offering an alternative, mm-hmm. you know, an alternative to being in jail, being in juvie. Mm-hmm. And so we spend five days learning about how to work with youth and policies and how to write things up and how to restrain, mm-hmm. which was interesting. The first time and the place where you're having this orientation, there are kids there in placement. So it's not just like you're doing it this in in a room somewhere. Right. And the first time I saw four large adults take a 14-year-old kid and pin him to the ground, I thought it was going to be yelling. <laughs> um, but they, they teach you and you have to practice and, and whatnot. So I turned up at the, turned up at the ship, on Bill of Rights, come aboard late, in, late at night, get up in the morning, and we get underway first thing. And this six-and-a-half-foot, 250-pound, you know, 16 year old comes up and threatens to punch me over the side. <laughs> it's like one of my first interactions with anybody and we're underway. We're off the coast uh-huh. of outbound from Rockland, I think. So off the coast of Maine heading uh-huh. South and this massive kid is in my face and he's threatening to punch me over the side. And I, I remember the thought going through my mind, what you do next is going to define your experience for the rest of your time on board this ship. So I said, all right, get on with it or get back on Bowwatch. <laughs> and he went back to Bowwatch. Oh, my God. <laughs> which is why I wasn't unconscious in the water. I, I, chance, I, I stared him. I should say that a different way. So I stared him right in the chest and said, <laughs> and said okay, get on with it or get back on Bowwatch. Um. But there were a couple of things that I didn't know. I didn't mm-hmm. have the, the theory that things I learned from that. One, kids in that situation, they are looking for someone to push back. Mm-hmm. They are hoping, not all of them, but that's mm-hmm. something that's missing, that's been missing from their life at some, in some degree up until that point. Mm-hmm. And they want someone to draw the line. And they want someone to be willing to take a risk and draw the line and tell them what they need to, mm-hmm. to do which isn't to say that any other kid in the same situation might've just decided, yeah, just smack this guy. <laughs> yeah, right. And let's, let's put this in perspective. The, these, these kids were on board for things like attempted murder of a police officer. This or was not like a one, shoplifting charge. These no, were this is, serious. This isn't, this is, they, they aren't in there for using, mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't, haven't smoked dope and got caught. There's one kid that was in there for like, um, three counts of grand theft auto and four counts of aggravated assault. There's another kid who'd robbed a liquor store with a gun he'd stolen from a cop. And they were all, I mean, at the, at the end of the, day, of the day, they're all just kids. They want to be loved and accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoyed working there. So this was a lot, were they placed on board this ship or was the, or was this program something that they were mandated to do or was this something that they were told either you do this or you're out or was it a you know was it a volunteer they were placed into vision quests care okay by the courts and vision quest decided whether they went and worked on a farm or reenacted a wagon train or or went to sea and as a general rule the ones that were put on board the boats were um in theory the better behaved ones that mm. haven't been in the program for a while. It didn't always work out that way. Sometimes mm-hmm. we get people fresh in. 
since the, the ships tended to be higher profile because they'd arrive in ports where there were, you know, human beings, they were right. used more of more of a, uh, a show off as to how the programs worked effectively. Can you finish the story with the with the kid who who threatened to punch you overboard? What was his experience like on board the ship? How long were they on board for? How long was the program? How long is someone in jail? I mean, it's the, oh, were, it was it wasn't like a five day no this overnight is residential. thing. Oh, a very interesting oh, oh, oh. dynamic because you had situations where there were kids that had been on board more than any member of the crew. Wow, actually, definitely any member impressive. of the of the marine staff, but sometimes. Mm you know, in there for longer than any of the, the program staff as well. And there were sharing of roles, you know, program staff would help set sails and so forth, but it was hired along those way. There were professional, along those lines, there were professional mariners mm-hmm. and there were people with, you know, social workers and psychologists and people that were there to, you know, helping kids reframe the way they saw the world. Okay. You know, in, in, with an idea that they would go back and become contributing members of society. The official statistics were, Upon leaving the program, 30% of, of, of uh, participants, if we will, 30% participants uh, were, were recidivists. They went back, right back inside the penal system. Um, the court system went to jail. A third uh, got into trouble with the law, but nothing strong enough to, to put them back in, in incarceration. Mm-hmm. And a third, you know, went back and had normal lives. The I I suspect those numbers were exaggerated. Well, were kind of like painted more positively. They might have actually been the case. But one thing that did seem to ring true was that people that had been through one of these programs were far less likely to um, commit crimes that directly affected people. Like interesting. The- I mean, the whole point of being on board a ship is ship shipmate itself, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. and. It's yeah. All of a sudden, you're not the center of the world. All of a sudden, you're you're a cog in the wheel, and you have to work well with other people to make sure that things to to make sure that everything is safe and you're moving forward. So I could definitely see that translating back into your your regular. <laughs> I'm using air quotes regular life, whatever that may be. So that doesn't surprise me. If we can kind of go full circle, what about the young kid who threatened you? I mean, he he eventually left the program, transitioned back to, he transitioned back to another, well, he trans, transitioned to the program in Hawaii, which was the Tolimore program, because he was Hawaiian. Oh, 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 oh. So it's interesting, many years later, when I went and worked on the program at Tolimore, there were people on board the ship that had remembered him and he'd come across. Oh, really? It was a small world, that's so... <laughs> that's... Oh, it's a small world, but it's, it's like, <laughs> put it this way, if... It's a small world. And if the tall ship community is a small world, the tall ship community working with um, youth offenders is mm-hmm. a really small world. Yeah, it is really small. The reason why these programs were effective with youth offenders, particularly the residential programs where they are there for as long as they are there. It's like they get parole when they get parole. They, they've, just, they've never been given any responsibility. And right. they essentially have a job. So right. And particularly on Vision Quest, kids would work themselves into positions of responsibility where they were the student engineer or they were the bosun. Wow. Uh, or they had responsibility for, you know, trash when we got to port and they would get paid for it. And they took these responsibilities so 
seriously. Mm-hmm. And even just like watch standing, there was some of the best helmsmen I've ever sailed with were amongst amongst this group. Or boat boat checks, bow watch, they got to the stage where they they had a role on board that mattered. Yeah. And was positive. And it was really important to to the point that we would actually see some kids like getting ready to be transitioned to a either out of the program completely or to a halfway house and they would do something unbelievably stupid mm-hmm. which would set them back a couple of months mm-hmm. and people realized that sometimes it was intentional or even just subconsciously they just knew that it was not going to be as good for them when they went home yeah they were getting fed good food they had people asking them all the time you know how they were doing and really caring about the answer yeah yeah they were important they they developed a skill set that was completely not applicable anywhere else and so they were in an env- they were in a safe environment where right. they mattered where that was completely cut off from whatever influences had got them into trouble in the first place and a lot right. of them although they talked for months or years for some of these kids about what they were going to do when they get out mm-hmm. when it got time toward getting out they just you know at a visceral level maybe not couldn't articulate it in their brain but at a visceral level they just had had no desire to leave the environment they were in no i get it i get it absolutely but what an amazing incredible experience to see that evolution from yeah. the kid who wants to punch you in the face to this a valuable member of the crew who is striving to be better. Mm. You know, I think that is ultimately, isn't that what sail training is all about? Isn't that why we are so passionate about these ships? And isn't that why we want to keep them? <laughs> isn't that why we want to keep them around? Is that is that incredible evolution? And yes, that was extreme. And like we've been discussing, not a lot of our vessels do that anymore. But even at maybe a, a less extreme level is I mean, I saw it with my interns this summer. You know, I had I had one intern who started out as this incredible introvert who, you know, I think she's brave for signing up to be an intern, but maybe she didn't see it that way. She might have seen it more as like an, uh, you know, to hone her writing skills, which is what we we promote. But then, so, you know, she went through the Welling Canal and it was a traumatic experience going through the Welling Canal and the Great Lakes. You can read all about it on our blog. But then by the end of the summer, she was this outgoing, just, I'm not going to say completely different person, but she carried herself in a totally different way. And this, and it was, and I'm not, I was not on board the ship with them, but just seeing that progression through the summer was incredible. It really was. And that I think is a, you know, I think it's just as important um, as as what you guys were doing, but maybe not so, like I said, extreme. But it is an incredible thing to see. I actually get like a little misty-eyed even just talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It is why we remain so passionate about this. You mentioned the idea is like, why, why tall ships? Why now? In a modern world, why does a tall ship exist? And... I'd, I'd say in response to that, before we answer that, that's a question that's probably been around for you know, almost a century mm-hmm. right now. So this is something that anyone will say. No, there is no better way of, I won't make the statement, so I'll tell stories. I remember a kid on Spirit of Bermuda at the end of a, at the end of a voyage. This is a five-day coastal voyage. And we used to like wrapping it up with an idea of, 
What's the best thing that happened? What's the worst thing that, that happened? And tell us something you learned. A couple of answers stand out. One of them was someone saying, I learned I don't need to get along with someone in order to work well with them. Ah, that's very mature. <laughs> and, uh, for a 13-year-old, right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, m- most grown-ups haven't figured that out. No. <laughs> I think it was even to get along with someone. I think it was the actual thing I think was, I learned I don't need to like someone in order to work well with them. And the other one that came out, Different Voyage, was... I've been playing competitive sports for six years. And just this week, I understood what teamwork meant. There's very little you can do on a, on a ship. You can do a boat check on your own, but anything to do with sail handling, right. you, you, need, you need to work with other people as a team. Mm-hmm. Any watch-based activity, you need to be coordinating amongst each other. I think there are a lot of, this guy was a good struck me as a fairly gifted athlete and imagine if you're really good at whatever sport you play on whatever team you're on teamwork is you know someone setting you up so you can score right yes Team, teamwork is the there are people on board that his experience on a watch on spirit of bermuda was that no everyone just needs to work together right there are no star players on board yeah, teamwork is often interpreted, I think, in sports as being putting one's own ambition or feelings aside for the good of the team. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the person who never gets any time on the field or on the court because the better people are playing and they're there to get put in for a little bit of exercise when, oh, the, when, yeah. the, when the outcome is already set. <laughs> I just like kid eating oranges on the sidelines. <laughs> and there are skills to be gained by doing that. <laughs> to the idea of a bunch of people that need to work together i think that's one of the things that makes outward bound so effective is the idea that you have your standard model is outward bound take 10 individuals that don't know each other kids adults whomever put them into an environment that they're unfamiliar with and start teaching them skills that they need to do well in that environment. And right. then as the, as the program goes on, the instructors take more and more of a step back mm-hmm. until this group of individuals is operating very successfully in a, an environment that they would have considered hostile, you know, a week previously, two right. weeks previously. And it's, it's similar, it's similar on board a ship. You know, people come on board, they don't understand anything. The crew teach them skills and they Mm -hmm. progressively expect more and more of them. Mm -hmm. And they as individuals have to rely more and more on each other. Right. I did two Outward Bound courses. I know I've talked to you about this before. Um, I was 15, Alpine mountaineering for 18 days in Colorado. And then I did dog sledding for 10 days on my Christmas break in high school. But I remember like one of our very first conversations, I remember, um, I think we were on the Queen Mary for a conference in Long Beach and you worked for many seasons on the open boats. This style of outward bound program where you have a 25 to 30 foot boat with somewhere, somewhere around 10 people who previously didn't know each other mm-hmm. in an unfamiliar environment, learning skills and so forth. Seems to many people to be at odds with the traditional outward bound model, which is climbing mountains, whitewater rafting, dog sledding. Right. The original outward bound program was a small boat program. 
Oh, I did realize that. The original Outward Bound program was a an industry program for the Blue Funnel Line. The uh, This is in the middle of World War II, and Lawrence Holt, the owner of the Blue Funnel Line, was noticing that when his ships were being torpedoed by U-boats and the crews took to the life rafts, his strongest, fittest deckhands, youngest, strongest, fittest deckhands were lasting a couple of days before succumbing to the elements. Whereas his 60-year-old chain-smoking, rum-guzzling <laughs> engineers were lasting for weeks. <laughs> and he wondered, how come? And he enlisted the support of a man by the name of Kurt Hahn, who was running a, a boarding school in, in Scotland called Gordonston and had formerly been running a, a similar boarding school in, in Germany called Salem. And he'd been exiled for speaking out against the, the Third Reich and against Hitler and found himself, you know, leading a boarding school and developing, developing character de development programs for, you know, the local county and so forth. Mm -hmm. And he said to, to Holt, the Holt asked Han, what, what's going on? Why, why are the people that at face value should be doing the best? Why are they dying so quickly? Mm -hmm. And Han said, because they do not know what they are capable of. Oh. And, and Holt commissioned Han, Kurt Han, to, to create a program, a vocational training program, where he could take his younger crew members and expose, you know, have them go through a program where mm -hmm. they emerged at the other end with mm -hmm. a better sense of what they were capable and it's funny there, there were two requirements the program had to start in a month and it had to be called outward bound and Han said that was a terrible name and <laughs> it's non-negotiable and of all the things that Han has done you know in addition to you know Gordonston and Zalem uh the United World Colleges the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme and a, a whole bunch of other really well-regarded programs outward bound is obviously the one that that has had the most traction which is interesting because it was it was just a side project it was a right. custom little consulting project on the side and but it was taking taking these you know young men at the time into into wooden rowing boats out in you know off the coast of scotland <laughs> for 30 days but the general idea is you're in a 30 foot open boat 26 to 30 foot open boat depending on the depending on the school you know, the Outward Bound School. And two instructors, one of which has a Coast Guard license. And when there's no wind, you row. <laughs> and you might row for days. And it's not, you know, I've done a number of programs where you pretty much, you know, at night you rigged a tarp in mm -hmm. the rain, having rowed in the rain all day. You rigged right. a tarp in the rain and dried off everything with the pack towel and sponges and, mm -hmm. you know, crawled out of your wet clothes found the dry socks you'd kept at the top of your sleeping bag and what, right. you know, drive yourself, put on a dry layer of clothes to go into your sleeping bag. And then mm -hmm. in the morning you woke up and carefully put those clothes away so they'd stay dry, crawled into your wet flower every year and kept rowing. And I really wanted to work for one of these programs in part because a number of the captains I'd sailed with whom I'd really admired had mm -hmm. spent significant amounts of time, you know, working for outward bound programs at sea. Right. And the, the, there were two things that appealed to me. One was I figured my, I, my seamanship would become really dialed mm -hmm. in, in a way that, you know, 
I don't didn't have a twin radar. I didn't have um, a, a cabin for that matter or a proper head. You have a handheld VHF radio. You have a radar reflector at the top of your mast to show other vessels you're there. If you're in, if you're working up in the Pacific Northwest, you're crossing from the United States into Canada and crossing major sea lanes and negotiating. You're talking to vessel traffic to it. Right. It was a fantastic experience for gaining sea skills, really getting used to high speed piloting with, without. I mean, a lot of vessels back then didn't have chart plotters, but you know. Definitely now, I think these are good skills. You learn to use natural ranges. You learn to be very situationally aware. So that was one aspect. I wanted to become a better mariner by mm -hmm. becoming less, less reliant on the big ship, the engine. Uh, the other thing was I thought, I want to go and work for Outward Bound for a season because I want, I should. If anyone knows the way to assess how hard you can push someone, to before they before it's too much like the idea that there needs to be some sort of a little bit of stress is a good thing for learning pushing um pushing people to grow but if you do it too much it becomes a negative experience people right. shut down they right literally you know they, they mentally downshift and start relying more on their on their limbic brain and how hard can you do that outward bound doesn't have any models for that you just learn for a while it's one of the reasons i think why i stayed with the organization for as long as i did because i worked with them on and off for you know 20 years yeah you know, the, the first because it's seasonal it's great i could spend mm -hmm. i can spend you know a season say doing an ocean classroom trip i can spend a season working uh doing corporate racing in sydney harbor and mm -hmm. then i can come back and and uh work for outward bound for a season the groups that i mostly worked with with Pacific Crest Outward Bound were, were uh, either 14 to 16-year-olds or 16 to 18-year-olds. But yeah. I also worked a number of open enrollment programs where the average age was, you know, high 20s. And that's a, that's a very tricky age, even when you're not in an open boat <laughs> sleeping next Which to one? each other. The 25 to... <laughs> The 16 to the 16 to 18 year old ranges that you had there. Um, you know, everything is embarrassing. Everything is, everything is traumatic. Everything is emotional. And here you are like, here you are having to tell everyone to look the other way because you want to take a dump. <laughs> exactly. And for many people, that was the single thing they almost were most scared of. Absolutely. Like swimming in like freezing water and, and it's, it's like, it's challenging, but there were people that were holding, holding yeah. out for days. Oh, oh God. And it was, which is an, <laughs> an interesting, interesting uh, decision as an instructor. Is that what you want to be the most significant part of the program? So we would often, if people, and you know, you would just keep track of who was, who would become well, ping and ping and pooing and other people. <laughs> So sometimes in the first few days of a course, you just make sure you stop on an island where you know there's a where you know there's a pet toilet. Yeah. Just to kind of that have that not be what dominates their mind for these amazing first few days of these amazing formative experiences. <laughs> well, that's very considerate. <laughs> well, this is the other thing I loved about Outward Bound is you something I took away from that is I became very intentional about every element that went into a program mm -hmm. from a program effectiveness point of view and from a risk management point of view and that shaped the way i you know i'd go back and work on tall ships and it would have a similar mm -hmm. effect 
you've gone from science teacher to team building to shipboard captain to outward bound to business, but always with an educational slash leadership bent, I feel. And here you are doing experiential leadership training, and it just seems like such a natural progression in our discussion that this is where you ended up. My clients are mostly large global law firms, you know, top 50 firms. And I run programs for their senior associates and junior partners, and sometimes younger associates, but generally people that have been at firms for a longer period of time. My mm -hmm. clients are the firm and they have, they are looking for their people, their best people who are excellent lawyers and are experts in their field. And they're looking for these people to grow their skills regarding you know, teamwork, mm -hmm. ability to delegate, ability to work well with others, uh, effective communication, and so forth. Strong emphasis is around trust and the development mm -hmm. of trust. I run programs with very similar objectives to those that we would do at sea, but we do them on site with firms. So think of it this way. I take everything I learned from two decades at sea, whether mm -hmm. it was through Outward Bound or, or working aboard traditional sailing vessels, and I combine that with what I learned uh, studying leadership at MIT mm -hmm. and have evolved that into a, a way of giving lawyers experiences that enable them to develop leadership skills and effective teamwork. Well, did I miss anything? Are there any, is, you know, was there any question you wish I had asked and I didn't? Funny. We haven't even talked about Bermuda, which is actually where we did meet. We met on that, on that Torches Alignment Challenge. That was 2000, and Jen Spring sailed with you. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, <laughs> and actually she told me that there, you guys ran into some pretty nasty weather. You're going from, it was back in 2009, you're going from uh, Charleston to Boston mm -hmm. and you had uh, a full ship of young Bermudans on board. I think it was just you and Jen were really the only adults i mean you had no, your crew we, we had a full professional crew. yeah you should you did have, i know i didn't i didn't mean to say it, it was just you and jen um but but she's she was an experience as a passenger she was a, an experienced sailor uh then and she told me that you guys ran into some pretty hinky weather while you guys were out there we yeah we ran into the worst weather i've ever seen we experienced six microbursts in the space of about four hours and in between these microbursts, it was just a regular gale with uh, electrical storms. It was where the Gulf Stream at the time was basically hanging a big right and heading out towards Ireland off the coast mm -hmm. of Delaware. And we later communications with another, because we were racing at the time, mm -hmm. another vessel north of us, both Dutch, Urania and Tekla were were both nearby and neither of them experienced any of these conditions was highly localized it was one of those where we made sure there was always someone below that knew how to essentially knew celestial navigation because mm -hmm. of the, and all the kids were below by the mm -hmm. time we got into the midst of this because so it was always someone below who knew how to navigate celestially so if we if the people on deck got taken out by lightning along with all the ship's electronics there'd be someone who'd be able to navigate us back in um, to wherever, wherever they decided <laughs> to bail out. Um, and it was, we were bare poles for a lot of it during eight months. It was, it was bizarre. It's actually, fortunately, the previous voyage, we'd had the deputy director of the Bermuda Weather Service on board and we'd had to, we'd had to pull out of a race and, and pull out at Savannah. 
and on the way from Savannah up to Charleston, we'd, we'd run into a, a small microburst. And it was at the time she was on deck and she said, the air had just gone cold. There'd been a, a cold breeze coming across the deck. And she said, oh, that's, it's a microburst. And I'm like, wouldn't that just be a cold front? She said, no, if you can see the frontal activity over here and then it gets really cold, that's the advance of the downdraft coming out. So fortunately, I was on deck when the first of these squalls hit. And we, I mean, we'd had everything up. We had like literally everything up because mm-hmm. we were racing. Yeah. And there were some water spouts in the area. We were just trying to put some distance between us and them. And then this first this first cold blast came through and so it was like, all right, extract the other gin, extract the main, try, and just started peeling sail yeah. off. We had pretty much everything down by the time the first, the first microburst hit. And it was one of those where you think, well, that's bad, but it's going to get better. And then it just kept coming, kept coming. And finally, like literally after hours of it, like, this is ridiculous. We just fired up the engine and just motored at a 90 degree angle until we got out of the stream and it all, it all went back <laughs> to like literally nothing. So what exactly is a microburst? Is it just a super centralized mini squall? So if you think near, look, this is where I'm talking outside of my pay grade, but my understanding of a microburst <laughs> is if you've, you've got electrical activity, you've got these big updrafts of, of warm air in the cumulonimbus cloud, you've got, mm-hmm. you know, thunderstorm activity, and then it, you know, super cools and comes down. And as it comes down, it, it, if you're right underneath it when it happens, it's literally a downdraft of yeah. you know, hurricane strength winds, potentially. And or if you're nearby, it kind of comes down and then you know pushes outward to the side. Right. So if it's, you're pushing out to the side, you've got that that warning of you know it's cold. The brunt of this is coming. <laughs> Take appropriate action. I always associate you with that vessel. How long were you the uh, captain at uh, Spirit of Bermuda? Uh, for three years. The reason why Spirit of Bermuda was so interesting, apart from the fact that she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, she just looks fast. She looks fast. <laughs> she is fast. She is and, fast. And, and a new ship and radically different design. I mean, you, mm-hmm. can, you can go and pull a book out of a metaphorical library and learn a lot about 18th century fully rigged ships you can do similar things and learn a lot about Gloucester schooners but there is absolutely nothing written about that rig she appears in one painting and there's a similar a similar painting of something else and think about the history of the ship the hull was very similar to what might have been a you know what they called a Bermuda sloop at the time was something that probably had a hull you know something similar to Pride of Baltimore, mm-hmm. uh, but with a very traditional rig. And you can, so Bermuda, all the old money is from privateering. So there's a, you know what I mean by privateer? Yeah, yeah, essentially yep, a state sanctioned yep. pirate. Think of a privateer at the time commissioning a hull and dockyard. Mm-hmm. I want you to build me something just like you built for the Royal Navy, but mm-hmm. stop when you get to the rig. We're going to play around with something new. <laughs> and in Bermuda, they talk about, you know, up on, down island is the windward and leeward side there's a lot of working way to windward to get to the other side of the island mm-hmm. and as a privateer being able to get the weather gauge being able to get the windward of your of your um opponent mm-hmm. is highly valuable so i can just see them experimenting around with different rigs the spirit of the, the vessel that the spirit of bermuda is based on right um is the first recorded instance of Bermudian rig sails or Marconi sails, big four and a half triangles. 
So there's that fascinating, geeky aspect of this is why one <laughs> would want to go and be the captain of the ship because right. it's going to be a steep learning curve and, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But the idea that a program, having worked for you know a number of programs that are trying to make a difference in their own parts of the world, mm -hmm. the idea of working for a program where it's conceivable that every child in the country yeah. can have yeah. the same formative experience at the age of 13, yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, and I think I that's what that. kind of sucked in, and that's why, you know, mm -hmm. that's why it was a, a fantastic three years. Every public school, every private school in the country sends out a group. You know, well, sends out two groups for the college schools. They send a boys' group and a girls' group. Um, but you know, every child in the country goes to sea on the spirit of Bermuda for five days and works as crew. Ah, oh, that's incredible. It's amazing. Simon, I do appreciate you taking this time. Um, it's been really interesting going from Australia to Bermuda <laughs> to Massachusetts with you. So thank you again. This has been, um, this has been a lot of fun. It's been my pleasure. A bark, a brig, and a schooner walk into a bar is a Tall Ships America production. The music provided by Kebab Studios. You can find us in all the usual places, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Tall Ships America, and on our website at tallshipsamerica.org. Send us your sea stories or drop us a line at manager at tallshipsamerica.org. As always, be sure to support your local tall ship. Bye.